0: This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to www.3cr.org.au
1: 3CR 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty.
2: This is 3CR
0: Breakfast.
2: Oh yeah! Alternative news, analysis, Wrap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8:30am. Only double! Wrap your hands. Baby, baby, baby.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. We had a little bit of a um. Music intro um, that kicked into the start of our show. So sorry about that, but we are here now and uh, welcome, welcome Jackson.
3: Yes, I hope you didn't have a moment of discord over your breakfast cereal.
1: We we had a little bit of um, concern, but we we're all good. We're able to quick recovery. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, very nimble on the panel, James. Well done. Um, and you know, I, I guess we. Over the last kind of month or so, perhaps we – I'm sorry if we've had a dreary note to the early start of um, describing the weather in particular, but Mm. it's starting to pick up a little bit. Mm. Saturday was uh, quite warm, 19 degrees, so um, it's starting to get over that kind of, you know, real dark cold. So I hope everyone's I think –
3: sorry to interrupt you – I think Michael Lunig just put out a new painting of The Arrival of Spring – which is a good sign to me that things are turning. And I, I do... I think I said this last week, though. There's this strange adjustment that happens to me in early July where suddenly the cold doesn't... I don't find myself thinking about it quite so often and bitterly cursing it under my breath as I troop down the street in a very hairy jacket.
1: You can start to, um, you know, smell finals football just around the corner and starts to warm... Not just the bones, but you know, a little tingle in the heart as the dreams may come true.
3: When will the AFL recognize the way it is shooting itself in the foot with regards to equity by allowing Geelong to have their own private stadium down the road? When I guess they allow Hawthorne to play in Tasmania and North Melbourne to play in Tasmania, they get an unfair advantage from that too. I would say they like it like
1: the only regional. Team in the competition is, uh, you know, I think oh, an inspiration to all outside of major cities.
3: Port Adelaide and
1: Fremantle are not
3: suburban regions. They're not
1: regional <laughs> cities, they're areas within uh, capital cities.
3: Yeah, but they've always said that Perth is the biggest regional city masquerading as a capital. That's a great line from Australian author Tim Winton, I believe, in his one good note. Yeah, a few good books.
1: Well, we have um, we have a great show again today, and um, yeah, we're going to talk, I guess, a little bit about kind of arts um, media sort of um, focus today.
3: Hmm, I'm excited. I think we're going to talk about something that's really relevant to 3CR, which is about media diversity and an increased environment of media concentration and a dearth of quality media. You know, we saw last week that. Fairfax, you know, who owns the very well-known mastheads, the Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, Australian Financial Review, um, is being subsumed or consumed by Nine Entertainment, uh, Nine MSN, Nine News, <clears throat> Sunday Night, there's this type of programming, and there's obviously a, a gap, to my mind, editorially between those two organisations. But you've got this moment of kind of media consolidation where the government has changed laws, just change the laws to allow uh companies to own uh different types of um media as in radio Fairfax has radio as well print and television within the same city that used to, we used to be protected from that you know in the interest of having a diversity of voices rather than something
1: that Paul Keating um helped to bring in an article I read on the weekend talked about that being uh in to spite um Kerry Packer and after kind of some feuds they had in packer supporting um howard in the election
3: Mm, i didn't realize it was so new i thought we would have had media diversity laws from the 60s but perhaps it took us that long to bring them in i haven't done my historical reading but yeah i think you know we've just had our radiothon not you know just a month just over a month ago we've had programming like beyond the bars i mean we put out you know, 400-odd shows every week, you know, from volunteer effort. It's, a, it's just an interesting time for the media because, you know, there's never been more available content. You know, you you jump on Twitter or Facebook or whichever social media you use and you can find links to articles and films and uh, podcasts, all different styles. And some of it is amazing, but some of it is um, factually incorrect or some of it is filled with with alternative facts. So I'm looking forward to having uh, Margaret Simmons on the program later this morning. She's a professor of journalism at Monash and a long-term journalist herself. Uh, And she wrote a great article in a publication called Inside Story about the merger, she's going to come on and talk about it and talk about, you know, there, there has been a sense that this shift in media ownership and the shift in the way that we get our media and what we're willing to pay for it isn't just affecting the quality of media but perhaps might be affecting democracies. Here mm-hmm. in Australia, in the UK, in America, we've seen some pretty interesting political shifts and there is, you know, uh, some theorists out there that say that it's because of lack of... um. Quality public debate.
1: And uh, after that, we'll have our regular programming of Over the Wall, and Mm -hmm. then we'll be speaking to Van Rudd, who, um, you know, amongst other things, has been painting some very uh, public kind of political murals, um, and one that he painted, um, last week got a lot of media attention. So mm. I look forward to speaking to about, those people. It was about dangerous gangs. It was. Um, and, but right now let's go straight into alternative news. And that was a quick intro, because we need to get right down into the nitty-gritty. You're going to find out where that fade-out button is, or are you just going get... to No, no, I like that. That was good. Snappy. Um, so, well, I'll start. And I wanted to talk about Imran Khan, who over the weekend, well, late last week was the uh, Pakistan elections, and Imran Khan looks to um, have his party and um, is looked to have won the election. And... Um, I believe he's going to be the the Prime Minister of Pakistan. Imran Khan, obviously, um, former cricketer, 1992 World Cup winning captain of Pakistan. Um, And I guess ever since that kind of moment, he retired from cricket and concentrated on political career in Pakistan. And I think for a large, um, most of that time has been quite a moderate kind of voice in um Pakistan politics mm. um you know which is 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 a very kind of complex uh, political kind of situation i guess we have the military as an overarching political power um above the democratically elected uh leaders and being
3: so, the military
1: are you yeah. yeah and so and so that that obviously poses um problems in itself poses a direct threat To democracy, yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I think some of the things that uh, Imran Khan has spoken about over the last kind of couple of months in the lead-up to the election and, and, uh, you know, in terms after that, and, and, you know, things I guess he's been doing for a number of years is really around de-escalating violence in the area, that he wants to uh, have signed treaties with with, uh, neighbouring countries like India, India, wants to sign a treaty with the Taliban, says that, you know, the, P- the Pakistani people shouldn't be fighting each other with the military and the Taliban to try to work out some kind of a ceasefire um, there. And, you know, also looking to um, stabilise, um, you know, Afghanistan, Iran, um, you know, looking at, I guess, the, the situation that Pakistan is in, surrounded by... Um, you know, violence, really, and t- mm. to look at that in a way of trying to de-escalate that. And, you know, I think, I guess, you know, that's a very noble kind of um, way to try to start your reign.
3: Yeah, he's also spoken openly about ruling for, you know, for one of a better term, the huddled masses of Pakistan rather than the wealthy elites. You know, he wants to stamp out endemic corruption and, you know, the violence you were speaking of on election day. I understand 31 people were killed during a suicide attack, um, in Bal- Balochistan, uh, but he still uh, commended those who came out and voted in spite of that. I think he, he won quite a significant majority as well. It seems he has quite a mandate, um, to bring in some of the changes that he would like to. I'll just give you a quick overview of his uh, promises, mm-hmm. um, he said that all these policies will be aimed at ordinary citizens. He plans to strengthen government institutions, across uh, the board accountability for all, increase employment among young people, help farmers get back on track, spend money on development, repurpose the Prime Minister's house for a public purpose. And as you've said, address ties with China, Afghanistan, Iran, the US and India. And he plans to safeguard the nation's taxes. Now, this worries me a little. Is he saying he's going to rule for the many, but he's also going to say he's going to decrease all of our expenses. So I'm not sure how you can do both unless a lot of your expenses are going to fleece in the lines of, uh,
1: political allies. Yeah, I think that there's certainly when somebody comes out, you know, he was very strong, um, around the Panama Papers. About corruption and I think when somebody comes out so strongly around corruption in this kind of situation, it does concern me about possible corruption that they may be hiding. There's a lot of, um, chatter that he was installed by the, uh, military, by the Pakistani military. Um, but I guess, you know, that is also, uh, the rumor anytime political leader happens in in pakistan because you either um have some help from the military or you're against the military um and you know i think that it's a very obviously uh quite a dangerous game to become to want to become leader um in pakistan we've seen Mm. um you know the former uh, prime minister is in jail um you know obviously think like Bennazir Bhutto and um and her father as well were both assassinated and mm. um, yeah, so I think it will be interesting hopefully uh you know it leads to does lead to de escalating violence around there and and um you know that Imran Khan can try to carry out some of the things that he's intending to, but you know I think that's something uh, perhaps we can um monitor and and look into, because I think it has a really important political um, importance for that region.
3: Yeah. One thing he said, which is very interesting, I think you mentioned that, you know, he wants to reach out to Afghanistan. He sees, you know, Afghanistan as having suffered most under the war on terror. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that he um, envisions open borders with Afghanistan reminiscent of those with the European Union. Mm-hmm. it would be interesting to see the US's response to that statement, considering um control of borders is something that's at the forefront of their regional um, aspirations, I would say.
1: <clears throat> well, he's, he's um, famously spoken out against America, uh, against Donald Trump, and I think quite a few years ago um, said that if he sees any US drones, he'll be taking them out of the sky himself. So
3: With a really good bouncer.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Thunderbolt. And... Jackson, you wanted to talk about something else in alternative news?
3: Well, I just, um, because we are having a bit of a conversation today about media diversity, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking with Margaret Simmons about the Fairfax and nine merger. And we're also talking with Van Wright about the role that public art, especially his public art plays in, um, developing the public discourse, which I think is, you know, what a lot of us want from the media, you know, is some, um, guiding points about, you know, what what we should be talking about, what we should be discussing as a society um, so that we can put pressure on our politicians for change. But uh, I was really interested, uh, and it got a bit of interest on Twitter over the weekend, an article that Julia Baird, who's a host of The Drum on ABC News 24 and on ABC Online, she published this on Friday evening, an article called Shouting Down Your Opponents Just Cements the Silos, which was published in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um and really it was an article about her frustration that she feels that she cannot get quality conservative voices onto the ABC. And the reason she can't get quality conservative voices onto the ABC is not because of an ABC bias to the left. It's because the ABC audience go into meltdown online criticizing voices from Particularly, she identified the IPA. You know, every time they have a guest on from the IPA, the Twitter sphere, the comments on um, on the ABC Online's page fill with people, you know, saying that the IPA does not represent broader Australia, that it has a really dangerous uh, ideology and policy platform, and that they would prefer that if they are going to have the IPA on there, that they have someone. Uh, from that far to the left as the IPA are to the right to create, you know, this, this uh, long sought for balance. I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. I think it's really interesting to, to tell the audience that they are reacting incorrectly to what you're programming, to mm-hmm. say to them that their sense of outrage is the problem, rather than looking towards the decisions you're making editorially. And one, and, and a lot of the people that are complaining about the IPA preface their complaints by saying that they're not a rusted on lefty or even, you know, perhaps a left voter. But I think it's important to, um, to remember that the IPA is a very small organization. They have, I think, 54 major members and then about 6,000 minor members who also pay, pay dues. So that's a very small portion of the Australian, uh, public, but they seem to have a massive, um, they seem to have a massive impact on Australian policy. I mean...
1: I don't think... But just, like, that's not necessarily small, though. I mean, if we were talking about a far-left party or a left-wing party that had 6,000 members and had 54 prominent, um, you know, Australian members and was able to influence political discourse in the way that the IPA are, we would be talking about them as a major force. And so, yeah, I mean, like, not... That they're not a mainstream political party, but they do have a lot of mainstream influence.
3: Yeah, I think it's about where that influence is coming from, though. Who those fifty-four members are, and a lot of them are at the very top mm. of vested interest in Australia. Things like big oil, big mining, Gina Rinehart, Andrew Forrest. You know, these are the people that donate to the IPA regularly, mm. and these are the people who their policy uh, is about supporting. So, so that gives the them commentary perhaps but the commentary from the ABC's commentary at the ABC's listenership is that we' you know for years now we've been listening to this organization what I would describe as a radical organization and the changes that have been made under the Abbott and Turnbull governments have not I mean the results over the leak the weekend in these uh, by-elections confirm this there was a massive swing to labor you know not that they're putting up You know, that much alternative policy at the moment. This is a rejection of the neoliberal policies, I would say. I mean, you just look at when Tony Abbott came to power, the IPA published a list of 75 uh, policies that they would like to see him achieve in his time. At the top was, repeal the carbon tax and don't replace it. it. It will be one thing to remove the burden of the carbon tax from the Australian economy, but if it's just replaced by another costly scheme, most of the benefits will be undone. Now, I'll put it to the IPA that that's exactly what Tony Abbott did, and I don't know how your energy bill has been in the last four years, but I imagine it's gone up
4: mm-hmm. since
3: the repeal of the carbon tax. They wanted to abolish the Department of Climate Change. Check. They wanted to abolish the Clean Energy Fund. Check. Repeal Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. They've tried pretty hard to do that. This is also another really interesting aspect of this debate. Julia, Bates, Julia Baird is writing as an ABC host. The IPA want to close down the ABC. Mm. That's that's on their list, you know, to uh, cut funding and perhaps even shut down or make it a commercial product. I just think that... I don't think that's in the interest of the Australian public, to to me, to to shut down a national broadcaster that isn't uh, doesn't owe anything to advertisers and you know hopefully maintains its
1: editorial independence. I think I just want to go back to what you were talking about at the start and then you know we'll try to unpack as much of that as we can because <laughs> there's a lot of information. But one thing I think at the start which really uh, does annoy me a lot is the when we have um, Twitter responses or social media responses becoming part of a broadcast in a sense of, uh, you know, becomes part of the feedback or the actual, you know, live broadcasting. Uh, you know, I think it's different say on Q&A where there's, there's a, there's a lot of, um, content that comes up from social media and obviously part of that is vetted as well, but there's a lot, it's a lot of it. There's a lot that comes out there. Uh, what we see, you know, we see it, um, we see it in sports broadcasting as well. You know, uh, something happened and the Twitter, you know, universe has gone into meltdown or social media has is outraged when there's three people with, you know, two followers who, who have made a comment about something, you know. So I, I think that that kind of response from the ABC host to start with, you know, who are these people and how many, you know, is this true? is it or is it the IPA members with a whole bunch of burner accounts that are just putting in fake feedback or you know like why or, would
3: they be doing that the feedback well, be, is negative but it, towards it, the IPA it's creating
1: a story you know i think that it's about like there's so many media journalists and different people are uh, creating these accounts to be able to you know control the narrative around things so mm. you know like it just it, it creates a fake discourse or a fake a fake kind of um problem when there isn't one and i think that that i i really don't like that
3: i'm gonna politely disagree with you there because i think what Twitter creates in some sense is like a constant town hall meeting, you know, where you have real-time responses to things that people are reading or hearing or seeing, and they just jump on and they say, this is how this makes me feel. And of course it's not, you shouldn't treat it like a sourced journalistic piece, but it, do, it is the public debate in real time, and, it, and it's affected by the anonymity of the medium, and it's affected by the immediacy of the medium, definitely, in that it's not very well thought out. But I think... To me, what was interesting, reading through the comments on the Sydney Morning Herald article rather than reading, you know, the Twitter online, was mm-hmm. that it was a broad range of respondents who were very happy, who wrote, you know, not, you know, 128 character tweets of profanity and rage, but, you know, paragraphs uh, describing their political persuasions and explaining why the IPA is overrepresented. Now... Um, Julia Bird has pointed out that the IPA have only appeared on the Drum three times this year, but commentators like Philip Adams are saying that they roll out the red carpet for the IPA. But it's just very interesting to me that she's saying she's trying desperately to get quality conservative commentators, you know, to fight this idea of ABC bias. But you know, Janet Albrechtson and Rita Panahi decline and say that the Drum is a terrible show and that the ABC is a terrible network, you know, and you've got. Andrew Bolt writing in the paper saying that it should be shut down. I think it's it's just a strange environment when you have an ABC host wanting to have uh,
1: forces who are actively opposed to the existence of the ABC. Well, I think you know what we what we're seeing as well across media, and it's happening a lot in the US and across kind of the political spectrum as well, is this idea that it's not okay to hate or it's not okay to disagree with people or you know, whatever. And so, you know, seeing this kind of thing of like well, this is just my opinion that, you know, I why I I'm allowed to have this opinion. And don't – don't as you, you, soon as someone disagrees with someone, it's – they're shutting down their – you know, they, they've got a white supremacist on and they're saying – this person is saying, well, it's just my opinion, you know, what what's wrong with that? And the other person is saying, well, that's hateful speech and you're inciting, you know, violence and whatever in the, in the community. And the person's like, oh, see, you know, and we've got these kind of ways to just shut people down by name calling and whatever – and i think that 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 is very much become part of this this media landscape we've always had this kind of thing of like oh, the left wing uh, the abc is too left wing or it's not um it's, it's not, too evidence based yeah or, yeah but it yeah what it, it isn't it isn't um balanced enough or whatever but this is it's become like you are saying, i guess into something beyond that it's not just um allowing for this You know, it's not allowing for that kind of chatter to happen, I guess. It's trying to act upon it and enforce it in a way that is putting, uh, you know, quite right wing views across and then saying we need to balance that with someone who's really part of the center kind of view.
3: I'm just not sure about the tone of admonishing your audience for not liking the guests that you've chosen Mm -hmm. for some fairly, some fairly valid reasons. I would argue, you know, the IPA is a, is a lobby group for vested interest. That's my opinion, and it, and they should be, you know, their major funders should be described when they appear talking about issues like mining, like tax reform, you know, they we should which we should, should be open and, t- and transparent about where they get their money from, and who their alumni are,
1: people like Tim Wilson, um, yeah, I just think so. Would you be okay with having people from far left groups on the Drum and other ABC shows?
3: not only of course i'd be okay with it i'm also i'm okay with the ipa having a voice Mm -hmm. on the drum i just think it should be clearly stated um how they're funded and i think that would be the same with any uh left-wing group i think it's important to know whose interests they represent i think the kind of presentation of them as a you know um a policy neutral it's a bit like when yeah turnbull describes his climate policy as um agnostic you know like it's um it's just a bit rich you know like uh and i think that's that's the point about the ipa as well um yeah no i think we need i i i just don't want to see um outlets criticizing their audience for responding to the um provocations they're giving them or the um uh the content they're putting out i think people have a right to have an opinion on, on that content and for Julia to say that all of you hating on the IPA is stopping us getting good, good conservative voices on the ABC. That's why the conservative elements want to shut us down because they don't appear enough, but they don't Mm -hmm. like us enough to appear more. I just think it's a funny situation. I look forward to. Yep. Well, one
1: thing, um, that you mentioned there as well was the by-elections that happened on Saturday. Super Saturday. Uh,
3: or super, stop.
1: I, I feel like we have too many Super Saturdays to call them all really super, Saturday. super Saturday.
3: But I. Well, what would you call a Super Saturday? Does Clark Kent have to arrive? Or?
1: Um, I guess, you know, anyway, I don't know, but it was, there was, uh, you know, five, five seats that were, I guess the, the thing wasn't super is that there were five seats that were up for grabs and they were all held by the incumbent. And it took Do a what? bit of the super out of it, I guess. <clears throat> I was like closely following on, um, on the ABC mm. uh, online, and it was like, you know, predicted, went to, and it was like, oh, okay, well, that's business as usual. I think all the favourites got up in the in the footy as well, except for Carlton, don't we? Yes, that's true. Um, but, yeah, I think, I guess it is interesting. Uh, you said that, you know, perhaps this is a, a blow to Turnbull and the Liberal government because they weren't able to, Get any traction on any of these seats? Poling, I mean, I think realistically, otherwise, I think realistically, though, they didn't cont- they didn't have candidates in Perth and Fremantle, so that's two. Mm. Uh, I think they were disappointed in the Mayo seat when um, uh, Alexander Downer's daughter Georgina, I believe her name is, ran mm. member of the IPA, and so I think they put a lot of resources into that seat. I think they were disappointed there. Uh, I think the other two uh yeah that i think they would have been a bit i think with with um preferences they're perhaps hoping to get i think there's at least one of the seats in queensland that um uh, previously had been held by a one nation which maybe the liberals might have got preferences for but labor held on to but uh I, yeah i think that so they would be disappointed but i'm not sure it, it isn't necessarily uh a preview to uh, the federal election more broadly i think in this respect it, it's kind of how it made have you know look like it was going to track
3: how did the independent candidates perform um, or the
1: smaller party candidates i,
3: I know say, that because the, there was a lot of talk about yeah, particularly in bradman and longman and uh mayo about the performance of
1: small party candidates <laughs> i know in i'm in Perth that the greens did quite well um i think they got um maybe nearly 20% of first preference vote um or maybe maybe 15% something like that um and there were a lot of i think the a lot of um votes in Perth and Fremantle were for minor parties outside of the greens and Um, yeah, I'm not sure about the other electorates. I think it is interesting to touch on, I guess, um, Georgina Downer and the racist, uh, comments that, um, Alexander Downer had put on Facebook, um, saying that people, there's a lot of hate towards his daughter and, um, you know, this is, you're not used to this in the Adelaide Hills, the people commenting here must all be new arrivals, um. Yes, yeah, so Alexander Downer, obviously former um, part of the Howard government, and his father was uh, immigration minister in the fifties, um, I believe. So he's disappointed not to continue their uh, legacy of um, I think Liberal that, Party candidacy.
3: There was a good comment um, from First Dog on the Moon, I think, about Alexander's reference to first arrival or new arrivals. He said. New arrivals like Alexander buying their vineyards in the Adelaide Hills, moving over from Melbourne. Perhaps the people that are...
1: Well, um, that has been our alternative news. um, And we might just go to a couple of quick announcements and then we'll need to come back with our first guest of the day.
0: I'm Tash Sultana and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe, do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much.
2: You're listening to a 3CR podcast.
4: 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au
1: for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast.
2: Can we talk? (laughs) Can you talk too? I
0: thought you were going to talk first. You're Sarah. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm from Rock and Roll High School
3: and you're listening to Burning Vinyl. They feed you. You're listening to 3CR... Monday breakfast the time is 31 past 7 and you're 855 a.m. on your dial now Margaret Simmons is uh, the Associate Professor of Journalism at Monash University. She's written some books uh, including Malcolm Fraser, The Political Memoirs and Kerry Stokes, Self-Made Man. And recently she wrote an article in Inside Story responding to the announcement late last week of a merger between Fairfax Media and Nine Entertainment. And she joins us this morning to talk about what this merger means for media in this country. Good morning Margaret. Good morning. Margaret, I wanted to ask uh, first about your expectations of the quality and style of journalism we will see in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald after the Nine merger. For years, we've seen downsizing in newsrooms, the removal of budgets for investigative units. How do you think the merger will affect the quality of journalism produced in these institutions?
5: Well, I don't think anything will change straight away. In fact, I think there's a danger that people will sort of go to sleep again rather than being as concerned as they ought to be about these changes. Uh, it will take about three months for the C to look at the deal and for the shareholders to confirm it. Um, and so, you know, we're looking at least towards the end of the year before the change of ownership actually happens.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And then the new owners have made it very clear that their priorities are the real estate advertising engine domain and the pay television service Stan, mm. rather than the newspapers. So I think it'll be well into the new year before they actually start turning their attention to them and making changes. Um, I think we're likely to see yet further journalistic job losses at that point. There's already been, of course, over the last decade, uh, countless redundancies. Um, it's estimated that Australia's lost about 3,000 journalists altogether over the last five years, which is just a massive decline. I think we're likely to see yet more trimming. Um, long term, it will then. We're not going to see the sort of collaboration between Fairfax journalists and the ABC's Four Corners that have been a big feature of our public life in recent years. Mm. Um, so, for example, we wouldn't have a banking royal commission right now that hadn't been for stories that the ABC and the Fairfax and Fairfax did together. Well, that's going to stop. I think that's quite clear. Um, instead of which, journalists will be expected to collaborate across Channel 9 and Fairfax. And, of course, those journalistic cultures are very different. And then in the long term, I think there's a real question as to whether papers like the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age will be part of this group or whether they will be either sold or closed down.
3: Well, that's what I was wondering. I mean, in a time when budgets are tighter and tighter, could Nine's buyout be a welcome cash injection for an industry that's shrinking in print media or is it just, you know, holding off the inevitable in that decline?
5: Well, the thing is that the growth businesses, and this was made abundantly clear in the announcement last week, the growth businesses have little to do with journalism. Hmm. Uh, the two businesses in Fairfax that have made it worth selling um, are Domain, which is real estate advertising, and uh, Stan, which is pay television. Um, both tidy little businesses, uh, both growing fast, whereas the journalism businesses are not growing Um Fairfax doesn't uh, provide enough transparency in its figures to say exactly how they're going. But uh, Greg Highwood said last week that the Metropolitan Publishing, that's the the Age, Sydney Morning Herald, Canberra Times, um, are doing OK. Um, the rural papers, I think, um, clearly will be sold. It might be going to take a while, but I think they will be sold or closed. Um but, you know, there's nothing about this deal which has anything to do with journalism, really. It's all about those gross businesses which are digital, um, pay TV and real and, estate and advertising. And the journalism will be, be a, you know, a Johnny-come-lately in the consideration mm. of the executive. It um,
1: Margaret, it's James here. I, the MEAA, which is the um, Media, Entertainment, Arts Alliance, the union covering journalism, um, has called for the merger to be blocked by the ACCC. We saw changes to um, media ownership laws um, about you know, 18 months ago. Is there, is there grounds for the ACCC to actually block this, as the union's calling for?
5: Well, I'm not an expert on competition law, but I don't think so. Um, and that seems to be the view of most commentators, including those who know more about competition law than I do. The A3C has very limited legislation. It looks at um, market power, whether there's a monopoly in a market, whether there's a reduction of competition in a market that's damaging to the market. It doesn't have a broad public interest test in its legislation. And there's been arguments for decades about whether it should have or not, but it doesn't have. Um, so they're not going to be looking at questions like, you know, is this in the public interest? They're going to be looking at a, a relatively narrow range of concerns
3: around market. Margaret, you mentioned there that we won't be seeing the collaborations between the ABC and Fairfax that we've seen in the past, which, as you said, of course, it seems obvious with Nine being a direct competitor to the ABC. Of course, they're going to want to collaborate. You wrote in your article that Hugh Marks, the current CEO of Nine Entertainment, said the Nine work network would have no trouble adopting the principles of the Fairfax Charter of Editorial Independence. As a media expert, how, how easy do you think that adoption will be? How, how far apart are the editorial standards across these two institutions?
5: So it's not, it, I mean, it's partly about standards, but it's more about the culture. Um, Nine uh, does a... The journalism it mainly does, it's news bulletins and it's current affairs programs is mass market, um, what we once would have called tabloid news. It's an old newspaper term. Um, aimed at a mass market usually short pieces like a, an average a to fair piece for example might be five to six minutes um, whereas if you compare that with the investigative journalism that say the ABC has done in combination with their facts, you're talking about programs maybe three quarters of an hour long accompanied by thousands of words in the newspapers by podcasts um, you know a sustained effort on a single topic so you don't get a Royal Commission into the bank for sort a of five- to six-minute item on a calendar affair. Now, maybe, you know, I mean, maybe Channel 9 will look at developing a, an investigative journalism programme. It's had them in the past. The early 60 Minutes was, was certainly um, a much more substantial programme than it is now. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it hasn't got them at the moment.
3: Yeah, I... You know, we work here at 3CR as volunteers. We know how long it takes uh, to make good contact uh, content, how much time it takes. Uh, I'd be interested in your opinion on that. You know, how much time and cost go into good journalism, and you know, we're seeing this problem in the digital era. Uh, digital era, the proliferation of low quality, low cost commercial media online. If it's so expensive to make we've heard that um, from from nine they plan to save fifty million uh, just just beginning this merger I imagine those cuts will come from newsrooms where where are people going to get a uh, good informative information from uh, as we as we move further into this space of cheap or even free fast news
5: well that's the vital question and it's the question um, a lot of people including I have been asking. You know, for some years now, as numbers of journalists have declined, and certainly when this media ownership legislation went through last year, what I'm worried about now is that those are concerned about this won't see any changes quickly, and then they will fall asleep and think, "Well, that's all right." And the really big and damaging changes will probably happen in about a year's time, or maybe even a bit more. Um, but the uh, I don't think all of that 50 million in cost savings are going to come from the newsroom. I'd be surprised if some doesn't that there will probably also be changes in back office functions, you know, uh, human resources, legal, those sorts of things, which won't be so visible to the public. Um, But in terms of where we're going to get good and reliable information, this is an absolutely crucial question that goes beyond Fairfax, although Fairfax has always been a big part of that in Australia. Mm. Um, One of the reasons why the ABC is, and SBS are more important, perhaps, than they've ever been, is that they do provide some guarantee of a base level of quality journalism. It's not enough. If you live in rural or regional Australia, you will know that your local newspaper uh, covers local affairs in a great deal more detail than the local ABC radio station. It's just a matter of number of reporters on the ground and area covered. But the ABC does provide some guarantee, Meanwhile, we do have new entrants into the journalism business in Australia. We have The Guardian in Australia, which wasn't here um, five years ago, um, which is online only and, and free to the user, although they do seek donations. Um, we have BuzzFeed, which um, has a young audience and does some excellent journalism, as, long as, as well as a lot of light entertainment. <laughs>
2: um,
5: so there are new entrants, but they all tend to focus on national and international Affairs. What's mm. being hollowed out is the reporting of state parliaments, courts, of local governments, um, and that has already been hollowed out. This move is going to make it worse, I think.
1: I think one of the things we've seen, uh, I've been heartened by some of the things like like you mentioned on the ABC, such as the Four Corners programs over the past year, things like the Dondale um, investigation, and, and by the War on Waste uh, program on the ABC, which... I think um, you know, it's actually it's it's a television programme that it's able to see substantial change in the community and mm. and um whatever that whatever the issue and, and, you know, this one is about waste, but it's to see journalism be able to target something, provide a lot of information about it and actually have substantial change. I found that really heartening, um, to see journalism that's mm. able to have that kind of impact. I wonder how we can get that kind of translated into other forms, like you say, on printer and radio and things like that to reach uh, communities yeah. that perhaps don't want to consume it in that way.
5: Yes, well, I, I watched The War on Waste on view last night, actually, and I agree. I think it's excellent. It's a kind of investigative journalism mm. presented in a sort of magazine format and, mm. and very effective. It also struck me as they were sort of calling out the brands of the bottled waters and so on that were not much better than tap water or worse than tap water. Um, and taking McDonald's to account and so on, how hard that would be to do on a commercial network mm-hmm. where you're actually um, criticising your advertisers. Um, but, yes, no, I think all that, um, that's very true. But the, there are ways of journalism happening through the community. For example, we've seen with the Me Too movement, that has been a combination of investigative journalism and community activism and women speaking out enabled by social media. You know, I find that largely encouraging. It's the sort of thing which wasn't possible um, a few decades ago. Social media brings many, you know, a great deal of power into the hands of ordinary citizens. Uh, it can be used for good or ill, of course. Mm. Um, but it doesn't replace journalists on the ground. You know, without the journalists reporting on what's happening in state parliament, reporting what's happening in the important forms of society, community activism is weakened for um, so while we can you know we can all if you like commit acts of journalism um, the, the work of the professional journalist doing the often hard yakka not particularly glamorous not motivated by a particular passion for a cause but just conveying information that's what we're losing and that's not only investigative journalism although investigative journalism is important we often lose sight of how important what I call journal of record reporting is which is covering the courts, covering the parliaments, just maintaining a base level of information in society about what's happening.
3: Yeah, I think that leads really well into the debate we're hearing around the world about how this denigration of the traditional media and also a consolidation and concentration of commercial media in the hands of a few is impacting on our democracy. I mean, you mentioned the, the fact that social media can be used for evil. You know, we've seen what's happened with, you know, bots and um, uh, fake news online, uh, to borrow a term. How do you think uh, this further concentration, we already have a very very concentrated media landscape in Australia. How do you think uh, the concentration of media will impact on our democracy?
5: Well, it's not good, obviously. I mean, ownership is not the only kind of diversity. Um, There are other kinds of diversity. We've talked about the difference between tabloid and quality journalism. Um, Also, of course, one of the things social media has done for the better is make visible voices that never used to get represented in the media. Um, and that's a positive. So ownership isn't the only kind of diversity, but it is one kind of diversity. We've now got um, a huge conglomeration between Nine and Fairfax, one two separate voices, now to become one. We may yet see further consolidation between, for example, Channel 7 and News Corporation. That's not out of the question. Um, and although we are no longer in the era of the media emper- emperors, um, Rupert Murdoch about the last one, and he's an old man. Uh, these days, media companies tend to be owned by sort of institutional investors and, uh, and private equity companies, so you no longer have a single proprietor calling the shot. Mm. But the fact that, say, Peter Costello, who has a long record of trying to interfere with journalists' work,
2: mm-hmm.
5: is now the chairman of Channel 9, has to be a concern.
2: Mm. Um
5: Concentration of media ownership is not good. It's not a healthy thing. Australia has historically had one of the highest levels of concentration of media ownership in the Western world, and this makes it worse. So it's concerning. Thankfully, we do have a new entrants which to some extent dilute that, but they are relatively small players.
3: It's very interesting you've raised Peter Costello there. I thought an interesting aspect of that your article and other articles over the weekend raised as well is that almost 30, 30 years ago, I think 27 years ago, a young media lawyer named Malcolm Turnbull tried to help Kerry Packer buy Fairfax at the time. Uh, uh, over the weekend, Mr Turnbull says he fully supports the merger, um, Perhaps the accumulation of a long dream for him. And you've mentioned Peter Costello is the chair of Nine's board and he's long added his voice to criticism of media outlets that hold governments to account. Like Fairfax and increasingly the ABC, we're hearing a lot of voices saying that the ABC is biased, saying that the ABC doesn't have a relevant place anymore in the changed media landscape or needs to be uh, made to compete with the other media outlets rather than receiving government handouts. Why do you think... Um, Conservative politicians and think tanks like the IPA want seem to want to silence independent voices and solidify media into the hands of a few loud voices.
5: Well, in terms of politicians, it was ever so. I mean, I've never known a politician who welcomed independent <laughs> scrutiny. That's human nature. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to have a strong media. Um, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Bob Hawke was beating up on the ABC over its coverage of Aspects of the um, American Alliance uh, mm-hmm. and the MX missile crisis, which is, um, is very old news these days. Um, so, you know, it's, that's not new. Um, the difficulty is that it's now coming at a time when the commercial media, including Fairfax, are so weakened in terms of the journalism they're able to do.
3: Well look Margaret, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We're out of time. Thanks for having that conversation with us and uh thank you very much for your writing.
5: A pleasure. Okay. Bye.
3: Cheers. Bye. <laughs>
6: Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and
1: independent thought.
6: They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them.
1: Well, we are, um, you're, you're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and right now we're going to go into this week's Over the Wall. And um, I think on this week's Over the Wall, uh, looking at robo-debt and um, the impact it has on individuals. And I'm going to hear about one person's experience of, of the robo-debt um, crisis that's, that's um, affecting a lot of people.
4: Over 96% of robo-debts that have been repaid in full never sought reassessment or review. People repaid in good and ignorant faith, not knowing their rights of appeal. On over the wall today, we're going to speak to Scarlett, who has received a robo-debt notice quite recently. And how did you first find out that you had a, a debt notice, Scarlett?
0: I was coming home from work and I went to collect the mail and was opening it on my way up the stairs and I opened it and looked at the figure and was pretty much in a state of shock, I think, because the debt on that piece of paper was more than a third of my entire annual salary and I looked at the figure, I folded up the piece of paper and I put it back in my bag and I don't think I looked at it again for a couple of weeks or a month or so.
4: How did you feel?
0: I felt quite sick. It came in the context as well of struggling a bit financially and so it just felt like this massive, massive shadow that I couldn't get out from underneath of and I guess there was an element of shame associated with it like I was a bad person or at least a really irresponsible person so I didn't tell my partner or my family or my friends for quite a few weeks. And it still has quite a significant impact, both emotionally and mentally. But then I think there's also some behavioral changes that I'm only just starting to realize in reflection. Things like not collecting my mail or opening my mail and things like not answering the phone or phone calls because they outsource the debt collection to private companies. I started receiving quite a few phone calls from probe group and putting pressure on me to pay the debt off or to go on a payment plan. So, yeah, it definitely changed my relationship to opening my mail and answering my phone. I think a really big part of it is that you receive this letter and then there's just no information about why or how the debt is calculated. There's very little constructive information about your rights or your obligations or any resources to assist in understanding the debt or dealing with it. So that's really, really disempowering and I think if you're in a situation where you are already lacking confidence or in a precarious financial situation or even lacking in financial literacy, it's even harder to deal with.
4: Was it a long letter or was it quite brief?
0: No, it's just a a one-pager, really, that has your details and says, you owe this much money, here's how you can pay it. If you don't want to pay it, here's a number to call. Mm -hmm. So it's just sitting under $10,000.
4: Close to $10,000. Close to
0: $10,000.
4: And and you're a young adult who's just finishing their studies and has been trying to work their way through and, and been reporting to Centrelink all the way.
0: Yeah, so not only have I taken on massive debt to do those studies, I now apparently owe, yeah, as I said, it's more than a third of my current annual income. So, you know, I was on Centrelink for five years throughout my undergraduate studies. I have no idea whether that relates to all those five years, absolutely no information. So to contest it involves trawling through five years of bank statements or pay flips, it felt like a a massive mountain to climb with very little context or support so it's a little scary in, in that regard because I might not even have the information available to me to properly contest it which means I'm effectively having to pay debt that may not be applicable but I just have no way of verifying it. There's definitely some anger during that time, there was no sense that I was doing the wrong thing or, you know, trying to rot the system. And so that stigma or that, that idea that I've somehow done something wrong, just trying to get by and study and live my life is a bit confronting and it does make you angry and it makes you frustrated and a bit sad, really.
4: <laughs> and I imagine, too, a, a sense of fear as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely fear. It's just a massive confusion and frustration and it's hard to get the information that you need to feel empowered in a situation that is really, really disempowering and I think that's where Not My Debt and Victoria Legal Aid have provided some really good advice and support Um, and they've definitely helped me understand and feel confident to contest it.
4: Yeah, and you described it before as a feeling like a a giant shadow had come into Mm. your life and and retreating, and you probably needed that time to cope. Yeah. Self-nurture, because it came as such a huge shock.
0: Yeah, I just didn't feel like I had the capacity in me at that time, given that, you know, I was struggling to make ends meet with underemployment and other debts, other, you know, tax debt, and now this debt, and takes time. To work through that.
4: And what was the communication like with the debt collectors?
0: I guess they're pretty perfunctory, like they have a role to perform and their role is to try and pressure the individual into paying that debt in any way that they can. So there's not a lot of humanity to the phone calls and because they don't represent Centrelink or the government. You know they're very quick to say that their role is purely in procuring that money, and it feels very much like
4: that's what they're trying to do. But to make that crystal clear for the listeners, we're you know we're speaking with Scarlett, a person that's received you know close to a ten thousand dollar robo debt notice um, calculated by an, a computerised algorithm by Centrelink, and the communication that Scarlett's received is, is just a debt notice letter, and no. Actual verbal communication, no invitation to come into a Centrelink office directly and discuss this. But no, her, her first communication is with a private debt collector. So the government has outsourced this to a private debt collecting agency. And and were they trying to put any pressure on you about like increasing the amount you could repay? And did you feel like you had any ability to put it on hold and, and not pay? Or were they trying to pressure you that you needed to pay this straight away?
0: There was certainly a sense that if I didn't pay it or at least subscribe to a payment plan that there's further costs incurred if I choose not to. I think I just mentioned that I am in the process of contesting it. So they said, "Okay, we can put your case on hold for one week so we won't call you for one week and then after that week we will start calling you again so effectively they're saying you've got one week to contest it which is a massive process and I'm not even sure what they mean by like what do they want me to achieve in a week in order to satisfy them that they don't need to follow up anymore so I think that week expired about
4: a week ago and and which is factually incorrect because if you're putting an appeal in and then it should go on hold until the outcome of the appeal is, is placed.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah so that was that was quite confusing because you're receiving kind of differing information from different bodies and yeah I think because they are not representatives of the government or Centrelink they they can kind of act according to their own code or their own understanding rather than having a deep understanding of what the contestation process looks like and the length of time it can take and the different review processes.
4: And thank you to Scarlett for that interview and you can hear an extended version on our podcast. And listeners, don't forget, it's empowering to know that $100 million of robo-debt notices have been subject to a review by recipients and $75 million of that $100 million has been wiped been seen as incorrect debt notices. So it's never too late to review and please consider going to the Not My Debt website or visiting Victorian Legal Aid for opinion.
2: This is a pub- you cross
6: Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. and this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British Archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing.
0: 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present.
5: At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR steady, constant, sane, and committed to a nuclear free Australia.
1: Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And you heard Over the Wall looking at robo debt. And um, yeah, I think that's a story that they've covered, um, previous in about how it kind of all works, but it was great to hear first hand account of the experience of, of what that's like for people. Um, but right now, um, we have another guest on the line. We have, uh, Van Rudd, who is an artist and activist, uh, based in Melbourne, and he has produced a lot of, uh, great art around the city now for a number of years, um, And some of the things we spoke about at the top of the show is looking, is doing a lot of political murals, um, at the, at the moment that have, um, got a lot of attention, I guess, particularly, um, over the last week on some, uh, news sites and, and, you know, has been shared a lot through, through Facebook and different things. Um, the one that was, um, put up, I think last week was talking about the kind of, um, Racism by Channel Seven and the media and uh our politicians um but uh we've got on the line now, van so thank you so much for joining us this morning.
6: Oh not a problem Jackson it's good to be here
1: yeah, you're talking with
3: Jackson and James as well James Brennan is uh, here Jane? hey
1: man okay uh I good to speak to you again. James. um well yeah. tell us i uh, i guess um you know, I just wanted to talk i guess a little bit about. Your, like, intersection of politics and, and art, and maybe just talk about, um, some of the pieces that you've done over the years. I remember, uh, there was one that you did of a soldier that, um, I think was on Anzac Day a few years ago that, um, was on the bridge near, uh, Flinders Street station. Yeah,
6: that's right. Yeah.
1: And that, that was a, I think a very, really powerful, um, piece of, of, of performance art, art I guess in a way, a visual. Um, visual art and how did you how did you come about that and can you tell us about some of the reactions that that brought out
6: yeah that uh, i think was roughly around 2004 or 13 it might have been 2013 uh but yeah i'd been working on um some of these sculptures and um people out there know the work by mark jenkins uh in the united states who you know does sculptures that are um very cheaply made and, um, you know, put in clothes, you know, normal human clothing, so they do look quite, uh, convincing on the streets and stuff. So I was sort of, you know, ripping off his ideas and, um, and, um, it, it, uh, came around to some periods in, in that year where I thought, oh, geez, I've got to make a sculpture that, um, you know, re- reflects, uh, you know, the, the sort of left wing view on, on, um, on the military and also um the post-traumatic stress that soldiers feel when they you know get um uh, sent off to far far away places to um murder other people that are, are like them so um so basically um uh, i yeah just found where i could sort of source a, um you know a second hand uh afghanistan australian military afghanistan uniform. so um, that was good and bizarrely it came from someone in the UK so um, just on eBay so I did set that up and just dressed a, a sculpture in that and um, bandaged its uh, head and uh, limbs and you know uh, gave it half a leg and um, yeah and basically the best part of that particular day which was the Anzac uh, day in 2013 was people weren't as hostile to it as as uh, you would think you know it, um, for example a, um, a war veteran did come up to us because I was with um, some fellow activists um M. King and James crafty and we were um <clears throat> uh, just taking the sculpture to the place It was very light so I could just carry it in, in my arms and um a veteran said, that I hope he recovers well you know that so was quite um you yeah, know convincing mm-hmm. piece
1: mm. And, and tell us about, I guess, you know, over the last um, year or, or two You've been doing a lot of mural pieces And, mm. um, you know, I guess before we kind of go into the political, um, you know, aspects of, of that How do you, um, like, how do you s- source the, the place where you're going to do that Do you get permission to to put up the, um, the paintings And And how are you kind of inspired by the kind of pieces that you put out?
6: Yeah, well um, this uh, it's it's um, interesting you talked earlier about you know the intersection of um, politics and stuff in, in my work and um, I do remember um you know wanting to be on this show over a month ago and and um, but you know as many people do you have got to have a day job here and there so um, um that does affect um, how you are able to get out there and and do murals and and so, and um, you know, I have a young family as well, so it's um, it can be quite a difficult process. So, I guess over the years of, of um, just uh, finding out, like many graffiti artists would find out, or street artists generally, is that you you can get busted doing these things, and and uh, activists out there generally would understand how you know strong the the law enforcement is on on generally, on things, so um, when you get busted, it can be, it can set you backwards, so you do have to have these strategies uh, and obviously when um, uh, uh, 9-11 occurred in, in the US and then all these uh, anti-terror laws got strengthened um, it uh, and when, you know, stental art was massive and, and politically oriented in the early 2000s and the laws came down crushing that and then Obviously, we're dealing with the effects of that on, on the streets. So, um, when it comes to murals, you, I find that I, I um, never knew really that that people would actually want something on their walls. That mm. is ironically quite more of a openness to political commentary mm. than say you would have had to do if you did it rogue. You know what I'm saying? So, um, and you know, because you can think about it, you can think about some issues and put it up. So that's how uh, I guess. Uh, how it works and and, uh, over time I guess you find out more and more if if there are people out there willing to um, have something on their wall.
3: Yeah, so I obviously came across some of your work online, Van. I know you and James have met before at various things, but yeah, mm-hmm. I love the, the tenor of your work. You know, it's got a real comedy to it, but it's also dealing with serious issues. This one you've put up mm-hmm. last week, I guess, or maybe, maybe 10 days ago is, um, warning highly dangerous criminal gang leaders with, uh, Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton clearly represented below wanted for stoking racism mm-hmm. to win elections and using racism to divide and distract us as they steal from the poor and give to the rich it's a nice direct message and it's in Kensington which is really has been uh, the heart of a lot of uh, debates around racial profiling and um, for young African kids living around those areas Flemington and Kensington mm-hmm. whose wall did you paint it on and what was the process of getting that one up
6: yeah well um I uh I won't say the name of the person's wall but um uh because I did, I didn't ask them if uh, I could mention it on the radio but uh, yeah, fair um, enough. but yeah yeah, yeah. Um but um yeah they're a friend uh known in the West um here and there over the years so um they offered that wall um it was quite a few months ago now. Uh and I never got round to doing something on it and, um, so I'd done a couple of other things on it and then, uh, particularly around the, um, Palestine struggle and stuff and mm-hmm. then, um, this opportunity came up and, uh, and, uh, it's, it, yeah, the timing sort of seemed right and, um, but I must say, um, what was interesting about that mural was many commentators on, on social media were saying that um, made Dutton look too nice and, um, and <laughs> too hip, you know. <laughs> And and I I walked away thinking, I remember doing it and going, he's just not as goofy as as, um, Turnbull looks. And um, he looks like he's, you know, some hip, you know, mafia dude. And, and, you know, sometimes you just got to pull away and go, I can't just go fix it now. You know, you just. You have to deal with that, and yeah. uh, you know. I
3: reckon you made um, him look not enough like Voldemort. You know, like you've given him a <laughs> bit more definition yeah. in his nose. Well, it's definitely him. It's clear who it is. Don't get me yeah, wrong. Yeah,
6: yeah. No, no. <laughs> yeah, no. You, 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 it's funny if all that stuff comes up because you, you don't expect it, and I guess that's the, the wonders of street art and, and <laughs> stuff that's done on the street. So, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that was a little on a side story, um, but of course, you know, most people. Could of just bypass that and realise what you know
1: you're actually trying to do, I suppose. And then that, that was a, a yeah sorry. Uh, I was to say last year, Van, you um, painted a mural in Footscray which had a bulldog with a bulldog's jumper um, lifting its leg onto Pauline Hanson, and yeah. the um, I think it was the council, the Maribyrnong City Council, actually painted over not the whole mural, but um, erased Pauline Hanson from from that. Um, from that mural yeah, how, yeah that's um how did that kind of i guess how did that feel and you know what was your kind of response to that
6: yeah uh that felt sort of uh i guess run of the mill in, in many ways you know you're thinking okay well it did the council did act quicker than i thought and, and more swift um to uh, get that erased but it, it, i guess it was I'd noticed around Maribyrnong, the, the uh, area, area out in the west, where the council had almost gone on its, art, its own art project where they're just intervening in all this um, street-based work. So, you know, they'd paint this section out and, you know, sort of uh, leave something else on there. So when they left the dog, I thought, oh, so typical Maribyrnong council
1: now, mm.
6: where they're becoming this oddly sort of adverse uh, collaborator.
1: So... Mm. Uh, <laughs> And they decide to what can go
6: up and what can't. Yeah, yeah, they're deciding what can be there and, and it just totally changes the middle obviously, but um, it shows their... Uh, it, funnily enough, it exposes the, more of their political side, So, um, meaning that, you know, they made a decision, the dog looks still hip on its own because lots of people love it and we want to still look cool doing this. So, um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it, it is... Um, Cynical ploy, and 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 they obviously reacted to so many phone calls coming in saying, you know, you better rip this down and stuff, and and you know, I got a lot of um, sort of threats and stuff, and you know, I love this story. One one person said they would pay someone ten thousand to have my teeth out, so that was um, you know, <laughs> that sort of stuff. I guess yeah, is it, sort of run of the mill alt right or, you know, um, you know meat and potatoes, probably enhancement stuff, which I think, um, yeah, can be dangerous on one level, but also, you know, it's uh, hyped up on social media.
3: Van, I'm interested, um, we were talking mm. earlier on the show about, you know, further media concentration and, you know, just the confusing mm. landscape at the moment to get your information from with so much misinformation online and, you know, yeah, art yeah. and graffiti art for a long time has been a great way for people to get, you know, a, a hit of information mm. Just walking down that's the street, right. you know, I was just looking at something yeah, you did yeah. a little while ago about Razan al-Najjar and uh, Fadi Absoula, you know, both killed by, both yeah, murdered yeah, yeah. by Israeli Defense Forces mm-hmm. last mm-hmm. month. Yeah, I just want yeah. to know what, you know, the vast majority of your, the art that you put up is, is openly political. What role do yeah. you see um, public art playing in shaping um, discourse, in, in shaping what people are talking about?
6: Yeah, that's a good question because I found, um, over the last five years, I guess, my role has been, um, you know, uh, starting out, I guess, from a position of, uh, where I dealt with issues that, um, you know, like, uh, fighting against racism and, um, anti-imperialism, uh, uh, you know, for example, the Mueller you just talked about in Palestine, uh, about Palestine. And then, I thought there was, there's one, this one huge chunk that's missing and I think it's just generally missing in, um, Australia, but also many areas around the world. That is like unions based on, um, you know, um, the, the work, the struggle of workers generally. So, um, I feel like my role has sort of, sort of modified a, a little and, um, gone into this area where I've, I've actually started talking with a few other artists from Victoria about, um, uh, starting a new collective that's um, um, based on um, workers' art, you know, like the tradition that sort of probably tapered off in the 70s and 80s in Australia. But, um, you yeah, know, sort of carrying on the, the message of um, building workers' solidarity, building unionism and, and all that. So that, to me, is an interesting question because that is uh, sort of an area that I feel like I'm filling up and because it's something you just don't see on the streets. Um, where, for example, you know, you do a mural that's based on a strike that's happening at some factory or the workers' strike, and um, and so yeah, that that's uh, that's what I'm sort of doing now, and, and um, but that's also on top of the the um, stuff that you mentioned.
1: Well, I guess you know we've seen that across there are different you know. Derry in Ireland, um, you know, the wall, uh, in Palestine, um, you know, the wall, um, in Germany, um, previously that yeah. these, these murals are, you know, a real part of the resistance there, but, and also a tourist kind of, um, position as well. That people go and take photos of these, you know, of the IRA murals in, in Ireland and, and that yeah, various yeah. other ones. And I guess, you know, in a, in a weird way, in Melbourne, at the you know over the last kind of ten years, we have this tourist kind of thing where the Melbourne City Council mm. takes people to see graffiti in city. Yet at the same yeah. time, they want to um, remove and complain about other yeah. aspects of yeah. graffiti. So I guess it's like the other council we we're talking about before, where the state is trying to be the arbiters of what is art and what isn't. And I guess you know perhaps it's when it crosses that political line and it, People like yourself and other artists are trying to get a political message across when they don't like it.
6: That's right. It's um, it's a very um, broad area, you know. Like people are, some people are saying to me quite naively, like, you know, Van apply for this council-funded um, uh, you know, art project, and and even the Maribyrn Council themselves will say it. And I'm thinking, well, one side of me thinks, well, maybe I should try, and um, and then. And then obviously people are familiar with that, you know, stage you go through where you start having to compromise your politics a bit, you know, in your work. You know, maybe I should just water that down a bit because, you know, they're, they're going to come and erase it in one week if I, you know, keep going with what I'm doing and uh, what I like to do. And, and, um, so there has been, you know, some, some, I guess decisions made on my part where, um, yeah, I mean, there's other things I do. And I mean, I like I do children's book illustration and stuff. So that that can, um, to me, um, has a different area that I deal with. So it's sort of, um, you know, that enters in the commercial world a bit more than what I might do with my political murals. So although I still try to steep it in politics, um, so um, I do weigh up all these things and sort of at this stage the last decade, I guess, is I've just pulled away from trying to go get heaps of funding for projects and things because you just feel like, you, you know, despite what people say, you do feel like, oh, I'm just going to spend all this energy doing this application and get rejected anyway. Uh, or if you do get in, into the project, you're going to have to um, pull back. You're forced to pull back on stage. So, yeah.
3: Yeah, I think you're right when you say it's a fraud area because, you know, you're asking for funding often from institutions and organisations that your artwork is Mm -hmm. saying need to be contested and perhaps abolished, you know. That's right, yeah. So so much funding comes from corporate entities and, yeah. I don't know yeah, governments yeah. that aren't interested in, in in helping the workers. I wonder if you know no, you probably no. do. There's a, we're actually having on next week a woman called Jacqueline Dowdy. Um, she's the curator of yeah. the current exhibition at the Ian e. Potter called State of the Union, which is all about oh, yeah, um, yeah. artwork made around the union movement made in response to mm, workers' mm. issues. That's on in the city at the moment. Yeah. So um yeah, I don't know. Have you have you been to no, check no. that out?
6: No. Yeah. Yeah. I went. Um. With my new collective, <laughs> we went there for the opening. Nice, uh, and uh, we're actually going to launch our new collective pretty much halfway through that exhibition, so um, in, in the actual venue. So that's um, that's really good, and I, I just wanted to say to Jackie actually that why aren't some of my <laughs> why aren't some of my um, latest uh, workers murals uh, up in that exhibition because mm. i you know i did that one at the cub 55
3: mm. yeah that was awesome
6: Thing um, that yeah the shipping container one and i did one at um the uh, longford strike at uh, at um land and and um <clears throat> and so yeah stuff that <clears throat> excuse me that was really kind of you know striking at the heart of Excuse the pun there, but striking at the heart of you know the issues of, and the battles against um, the massive corporations. And So, yeah, I mean, that's um, I'm just sort of poking fun at Jackie. I never <laughs> actually met her yet. They'll ask
3: um, her next week, uh, I see.
6: The, yeah, yeah, the, the work is so there. I thought it was so all-encompassing. It was, it was quite a brilliant show. So. Hey, I,
4: um, oh,
3: and, on, on that note, the piece you did with the um, 18th century factory worker and the um the liveroo rider kind of looking yeah, through yeah, looking through yeah. a dark glassly. That's a that's a fantastic piece of art. Oh, we've, it is, yeah, yeah. we've been talking quite a bit on Monday breakfast about, you know, this new gig economy and you know, the casualization of oh, the workforce yeah, yeah. and and you'd yeah. see that a lot working in construction <laughs> as well, you know, like the the wages might be good, but the the regularity of work and the, you know, sick leave and all those yeah, kind definitely. of things, that that's what's gone by the wayside. So yeah, found-
6: definitely. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is kind of like yeah, just the average um, worker who's with a job agency now is stripped back to basically nothing, and you, you, yet you're yet yet you're made to feel like you've got everything. Mm. And I'm saying it's just that bizarre contradiction. And um, um, but it's interesting. Yeah, just backtracking to that union um, exhibition, union art exhibition. Um, uh, yeah, Sam Warman. Um, you. People might know out there, and you might know yourself. Um, mm-hmm. He's uh, obviously a great artist who deals with union issues. So Sam Warman, uh, myself, Tia Cass, and Mickey Minus, and Mary Looney. At this stage, we're sort of forming this group. So, um, and uh, we're all talking about those issues, and and it's just great to have it as a solid channel in the arts. You know, <clears throat> something that you don't feel afraid to talk about in most art channels and stuff. So it's. It's um, because it's still quite oddly frowned upon for some bizarre reason. Um, I mean, I know that <laughs> we know the reason, but um, it's you'd think that it would be a lot more common to have shows like that. And, um, hopefully, that
3: does happen. Hey, Van, I know you're launching it maybe in a couple of weeks' time. But does the collective have a name yet, or is that still uh, is going to be announced at the launch time? Or
6: yeah, I, I don't know if it's hundred percent certain, but um, I think at this stage could be uh, the Workers' Art Collective, something like that. Yeah, so um, uh, don't quote me on that one, though. But uh, And uh, I hope they don't get annoyed at me that I sort
3: of
6: pre-entered and announced everything on Precia,
3: <laughs> put you on the spot. I <laughs> uh, apologize. Yeah,
6: yeah. <clears throat> and just one thing I must um, say, too, before I forget is um, um, I'm also, you know, most of us are also members of the Victorian Socialists now. That the new group that's um, started for um, election purposes um, for the um, Victorian elections, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it's just one of those rare areas you get where you can just fully state the politics, and a you know a, uh, you know, a, a fairly well grounded group is willing to support you. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you've got yeah, you've got a whole um, Bunch of supporters that um, you know uh, understand grassroots activism and, and unionism and stuff. So that, to me, is just a massive positive step um, in Victoria and hopefully for the rest of the country soon. Um, you know, uh, where people can actually grapple onto something. It's just it's so rare. And and so when we get you know um, opportunities to do um, artworks or murals. Um, and for once we can actually say, oh, you know, let's, um, talk about it in, in the context of, um, this new political party and, 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 um, how we can struggle alongside it and not look so isolated, which I think the only has been the problem of a lot of graffiti art in the last decade is it's still extremely isolated. Uh, and, and, what I mean by that is you're individualized too. You know, you, it's just so cut down to just the individual artist going out on the street and, and um, whether your following is two hundred thousand people or five people, it's still so isolating. So mm. yeah, I just thought I'd bring that point up.
1: Well, um, it, both those projects um, sound really great, Van. And I think I guess like the collective itself is a way of trying to bring that, like, remove some of that alienation and and bring um, people together, like you're talking about um, with the Victorian Socialists as well. Um, mm, mm,
3: mm. There's a just just for people who might be students at Melbourne Uni. I know that the Victorian Socialists have a meet and greet at 3 p.m.
1: tomorrow at the Clyde. So yeah, that's it. Yeah,
6: that's um, it. Yeah, you reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: Well, it's been great to chat to you uh, this morning, Van. Thanks so much for coming in, and it was really good to, um, I'm sure for the listeners as well, to get an insight into, you know, how you um, how you come up with your art and and how it's it's put out there for people to see. And I think, you keep know, it it's, up. it's great to have art that is visually available for people out on the street as well as not just in a gallery that's perhaps not as accessible to mm. everyone. So, yes, please yeah, this, um, keep yeah. up your artwork and um, I'll catch up with you soon. Yeah,
6: cheers. Thanks so much for that. Thanks, man. Catch
1: you later. Cheers. Bye. Well, um, I think right now we might just go into um, a Quick song, um, and then we'll come back and wrap things up. And, uh, this song is by Chris Wilson. It's Vigilante Man. And, um, late, uh, I think early last week, uh, Chris was, uh, diagnosed with cancer. There's actually a benefit gig coming up for Chris and his family soon. Um, so we'll just, I guess, uh, shout out to, to Chris and his family and to, uh, Chris Wilson fans as we play this.
7: One, two, three, four...
1: That was Chris Wilson and uh, it's lovely to hear his tones on the radio Um, and that that is unfortunately all we've got time for this morning and um, we will see you again next week but please listen to Women on the Line and listen to the rest of the breakfast shows this week.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.